There are known knowns. There are known unknowns. There are unknown unknowns. But there are also unknown knowns. That is to say, things that you think you know that it turns out you do not know. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Everything seems amazing in retrospect. Pearl Harbor seems amazing in retrospect. It's a failure of imagination. All generalizations are false, including this one. The lion cannot protect himself from traps, and the fox cannot defend himself from wolves. One must therefore be a fox to recognize traps, and a lion to frighten wolves. Machiavelli. The 20th century, it is safe to say, has made all of us into deep historical pessimists. Francis Fukuyama. You miss 99% of the shots you don't take. Lao Tzu. You're only given a little spark of madness. You mustn't lose it. Robin Williams. Just because a country elects a smart president doesn't make it a smart country. Bill Maher. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Uh, Luke Savage got the uh, crystal ball, got our copy of The Prince. We're, you know, ready to talk some geopolitics, some some real politique. All our favorite themes on this podcast. It's going to be a fun time. Feeling a little exhausted tonight, having uh, just spent an hour and 45 minutes in the company of Donald Rumsfeld in Errol Morris's 2013 documentary, The Unknown Known. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those late ones, one of those late records, but unlike previous late records, uh, we haven't been drinking, so this was, you know, more arduous than, yeah, than usual. Yeah, might have helped a bit. Before getting into that, Luke, you must be very happy. Your uh, your friend, and I think friend of the podcast, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, uh, scored a major political victory this week. Finally. (laughs) That's right. The guy who, according to uh, some of my favorite Share Blue commentators, you know, he just kind of talks and he grandstands and he never gets anything done. Well, you know, this week, Bernie Sanders, you know, forced uh, the richest man in human history to pay uh, his workers a living wage. And because Amazon is so big and Jeff Bezos is so rich, those workers getting a raise is going to, in practice, mean a lot more people are going to get a raise because it means any kind of competitor. You know, when, when a company that dense and that important raises its wages, it raises everyone's wages. So my first question to you, Luke, is what is your problem with business? <laughs> and my second question to you, Luke, is what is your problem with a company that employs thousands? <laughs> do you want them to go out of business? <laughs> Third, how do you expect to win the next election if you can't count on the support of Jeff Bezos? <laughs> All very good questions. And ones that I'm sure, you know, other friends of the show in the Democratic Party have probably been asking themselves. Anyways, what I love about this is that I really think it is a vindication of Bernie Sanders' strategy in the face of criticisms, both from, you know, liberals that, you know, he doesn't get anything done, or according to, you know, one of my favorite commentators and philosophers, Rob Lowe, let's not make the rich, uh, let's not call them names while we're asking them to pay. Gotta separate the artist from the art on the issue of Rob Lowe. (laughs) Frankly, uh, some of Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's a minority, but some of the, the critics on the left who think that, 
you know, he's kind of a, a sellout and that his strategy is kind of ultimately a doomed one. It's like, well, he just got uh, thousands of people of lo- low wage workers a raise and he, you know, he forced the richest person in human history into a pretty humiliating retreat. So just saying. And, you know, the good news is that uh, now that Bernie Sanders has nothing to campaign on, uh, we're going to go straight <laughs> into the Cory Booker presidency. <laughs> but I really I really think it has to be stressed that this was achieved through, I mean, I alluded to it before, that stupid clip of Rob Lowe in the West Wing, which Rob Lowe actually pulled out to attack Bernie Sanders on Twitter during the 2016 Democratic primary during one of the debates. Mm -hmm. You know, this attitude that like, oh, you know, the rich are so generous with their taxes. It's like, okay, well, you know, you don't think they're paying their workers enough. You just have to ask nicely. You have to do technocratic incremental reform, you know, hate the game, don't hate the player. And it's like, Jeff Bezos is no better than a medieval tyrant. And um, he deserves to be shamed and hectored and called an exploiter until he's compelled through, you know, work organization and popular opinion into, you know, not allowing workers at his company to be severely underpaid and forced to work in brutal, inhumane conditions. This is how we do that. You don't ask powerful people nicely to be a little less mean. You name the exploiters, you call them out, and you bully them until they're forced to exploit less and hopefully in the end, not at all. The bad news is less money for Amazon Studios Wonder Wheel 2. <laughs> Wonder Wheel 2. <laughs> Henry, last fall, every time your boss got on the stump and said, it's time for the rich to pay their fair share, I hid under a couch and changed my name. I left Gage Whitney making 400000 a year, which means I paid 27 times the national average in income tax. I paid my fair share and the fair share of 26 other people. And I'm happy to because that's the only way it's going to work. And it's in my best interest that everybody be able to go to schools and drive on roads. But I don't get 27 votes on Election Day. The fire department doesn't come to my house 27 times faster, and the water doesn't come out of my faucet 27 times hotter. The top 1% of wage earners of this country pay for 22% of this country. Let's not call them names while they're doing it, is all I'm saying. Before we get to the movie, uh, just a, a little bit of housekeeping on the Patreon We've got some uh, hot piping Patreon content for you out there. The last episode was on Werner Herzog's religious documentary, God's Angry Man. And the episode before that was the classic libertarian comedy show, Penn and Teller Bullshit. So if you're not a subscriber, uh, you'll want to check that out. I hate to think what Penn and Teller would think of, uh, you know, workers at Amazon getting $15 an hour because, you know, they made a pretty convincing case in, a, in their Stop Bullying Walmart episode. Well, you know what's going to happen. This <laughs> means Amazon's going to have to raise the price of their products, and this is going to leave millions of working families out of luck. Yeah, they're not going to be able to buy that, like, second, like, Vitamix, or uh, and all those workers are going to get laid off anyway. So, uh, touche, Bernie bros. Mm. And what is the message that we're sending to entrepreneurs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so folks if you like uh the podcast you're listening on itunes you're listening on soundcloud you know we, we're not very good at plugging it but um if you've seen those previews that we upload those are to the patreon episodes if you're not on our patreon yet uh we hope you'll join us there you get two extra episodes we kind of alternate weeks we have one regular episode every two weeks one patreon episode and uh you know there's a great little community on patreon so it's a great place to meet you know hot singles in your area who like michael and us I did have a message for uh, those already on Patreon because I know, uh, once again, there have been some issues with processing. This seems to happen every month. If you're having issues, it may be because Patreon, uh, I gather, has 
changed banks or something like that. So some of the information you provided, you may just have to resubmit it. I know a few people, we, we instructed them as such last month and they still had issues. If you're having issues, feel free to contact us through Patreon and, and we'll, uh, we'll help you out however we can. And if you've merely deleted your pledge, you are unfortunately not allowed to call yourself a member of Michael and Us Nation. <laughs> you can still listen to the free episodes, that's fine, but your membership card has been revoked. So I did also want to say to those who uh, haven't joined us on Patreon, you know, I know $5 a month, it's your hard-earned money, absolutely no obligation there. And we're not very good at sort of promoting ourselves or sort of doing the business side of it. But we really would appreciate if uh, you like the show, you know, going into whatever app or device you're listening to this on and just kind of rating it five stars, liking it, giving it a thumbs up, a favorite whatever else uh you'd be doing us a big favor i gather i don't really understand how they work but you know algorithms and things like that being what they are this is how a lot of people find the show believe it or not not everybody kind of finds it through uh you know will's uh, awesome twitter presence or or mine you know they find it it's in their suggestions or whatever on itunes if you've enjoyed the show and you want to help more people find it like that pokemon go to your local app and and smash that like button my goal is to become rich off the podcast uh without ever inspiring a reddit and i think this is doable <laughs> let me put up this next memo you want me to read this yes please all generalizations are false, including this one. There it is. Rumsfeld survived Watergate with reputation intact. Possible vice presidential running mate with President Ford. Questions about Rumsfeld are whether he's too ambitious playing second fiddle to Reagan. The credit belongs to people who were carped at and criticized and, and said, oh my goodness, you're warmongers. And we need to understand how we got to where we are. Who do we want to provide leadership in the world? Somebody else? When Shakespeare wrote history, the motivating force was character defects, jealousies, etc., etc., etc. Maybe Shakespeare got it wrong. Maybe he had it right. Governor Reagan decided to have George Bush to be vice president. It seems to me that if that decision had gone a slightly different way, you would have been future president of the United States. That's possible. In 2002, legendary documentary filmmaker Errol Morris interviewed Robert McNamara, one of the architects of the Vietnam War, for his Oscar-winning documentary, The Fog of War. He showed a side of McNamara that few had ever seen before, a reflective side, a side with regrets. From across the political spectrum, Errol Morris was praised as a master interrogator. Alas, it seems that it was a case of beginner's luck. <laughs> because, you know, I haven't seen his new one about uh, Steve Bannon, but it's looking like one for three. Oh dear, yeah. Well, so my experience with Errol Morris, I like uh, The Thin Blue Line. You know, you've spoken very highly of uh, Gates of Heaven, mm -hmm. which I'm looking forward to seeing. You know, The Fog of War, I haven't seen it for some time. We will do it for the podcast at some point. I thought it was great when I saw it. But I have to say, I really did profoundly dislike this film much more than I thought that I would because I kind of thought it was going to be you know more like the fog of war where as I remember it Morris is actually kind of shouting at McNamara he's kind of forcing him on certain issues I thought maybe it might be kind of a banality of evil thing because Rumsfeld has always struck me as such a boring profoundly unintelligent person you know mm -hmm. just one of these kind of Natsec hatched, you know, suits who's orchestrates the U.S. Empire 
technocratically, just like essentially a, you know, a bureaucrat with cruise missiles. But it's not even that. It's something far worse and I think far more insidious than that. A few weeks ago when we saw Werner Herzog talk about his documentary Meeting Gorbachev, he was talking about meeting Gorbachev for the first time. And he said, I come to you not as a journalist, but as a poet. <laughs> and, you know, I remember thinking, well, that's that's no excuse. <laughs> and I felt that very strongly watching this movie. The whole point of this movie is to sit Donald Rumsfeld in front of Errol Morris's camera and get him to explain himself and hope that, you know, through this process, somehow he'll be able to penetrate the icy layer of him and reach his conscience wherever mm-hmm. it is or get him to admit some wrongdoing. And because Donald Rumsfeld is impenetrable, mm-hmm. all Errol Morris has are these poetic flourishes. So there are a lot of scenes in the movie where the camera just lingers on Rumsfeld's face for just a little too long while, you know, he's got this stupid looking smile on his face after he said something ridiculous. And through these long shots, Errol Morris is communicating to you, huh, look into this man's eyes. Do you believe him? Does he believe himself? And I think, what is the point of this, really? Well, and Morris doesn't talk very much. No. I mean, the film is mostly Donald Rumsfeld talking. Mm -hmm. I think there are a handful of exceptions. You know, there's one time where Rumsfeld is asked about this completely made-up claim that Saddam Hussein was associated with 9-11, and he sort of says, well, you know, I don't know anybody that claimed that. I don't remember anyone saying at the time. And then you see you know, a briefing that he did in 2002 or 2003 or something like that, where he's asked about, at, at this press briefing, Iraq's relationship with al-Qaeda, and he says, how can I even respond to that? It's yeah, like, one of the reporters said that uh, Saddam Hussein claims that he doesn't have any relation with al-Qaeda, and the clip shows Rumsfeld saying, and Abraham Lincoln was short. Right. And then, you know, Morris comes back at Rumsfeld with, well, this Washington Post poll from 2003 says that 69% of Americans Mm. think there is Mm. a connection. Uh, So that's kind of the one of the few. One of the only, that was the only time that really stood out. I mean, for the the most part, and this is what I find so profoundly irresponsible and disgraceful, really, about this film, is that Rumsfeld is just allowed to be a character in his own story. The whole narrative arc of the film orbits Donald Rumsfeld's career, which it presents as, you know, just kind of uncritically as this kind of, you know, it's this career of this distinguished person who, you know, is selflessly given all this time and energy in service of his country, has this tireless work ethic. And um, the, the real pretension of the film is that it's studying, it's kind of probing this gray area, this threshold where, you know, the issues at play are so vast and complex Mm -hmm. that there's no playbook. So it falls to these people like Rumsfeld to kind of try to, you know, navigate the great waters of history, the great currents of history. And, you know, sometimes mistakes are made and the ship goes off course, whatever. Stuff happens, if you will. Stuff happens. To quote the great statesman. Yeah, that stuff happens, as Rumsfeld says in the film. I mean, it is such bullshit. Rumsfeld is the central character in what is, you know, basically presented to you as kind of a, a narrated thriller. I mean, the music, the the film has this sort of action music all the way it through. It has a Danny Elfman score. Well, you were rather profound in this because you said, oh, it sounds like the Batman theme. Yeah, and, and, sure then, and then it turns out it was Danny Elfman who wrote it. 
when this movie came out, you know, the standard defense of it was sort of, you know, by by staring at Rumsfeld for so long, you get a real insight into what a soulless shell of a man he is. That's uh, not how it, the film it, comes it, across. It's not how the film comes across. And like, and that's just liberals telling themselves that to feel better. That's like, like the liberals who went to see American Sniper and they were a bit guilty about how much they enjoyed it. So they had to like... <laughs> well, look look at all the visual stuff that Errol Morris is doing in this documentary. There were so many... It's war porn loving shots of jets uh, military yeah the the camera on the front of the cruise missiles it zooms in on a target there are all these like computer generated shots of like the globe right Um, right. lots of shots of you know rumsfeld's memos filling up the screen all set to this very pretentious danny elfman score (laughs) or there's there's so many visual things he does like when you see Rumsfeld in front of a mirror and with and we see his reflection like three times as if to show like the the depth and profundity of his presence that's that's right and and sometimes the narrative will just be interrupted by Rumsfeld he just kind of dishes out these very like tautological aphorisms (laughs) that never go anywhere and then you have something that sounds like the halo theme playing while he says like something like in a modern conflict there is no playbook there is only intuition or something like that. And, you know, meanwhile, this you're just like serenaded by kind of this like pretentious kind of action score. And, you know, all the stuff that Rumsfeld says in this movie about the war is exactly the stuff he was saying in 2003 to 2006. Nothing's about the changed. War. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And this is a movie that has 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. And you think... What did these critics learn from this movie that they didn't know before? I was astonished to learn that the film was from 2015 because it it feels like a document from sort of the 2005-2006 era where like the standard liberal take or of a certain kind of liberal take was still, you know, the Iraq war was a mistake. 2006 Obama would be like, you know, this this mm-hmm. was a mistake by people who loved their country and they did, you know. Yeah, which is kind of the line again on it now. Right, yeah. now because we're supposed to like George Bush again and, and we're supposed to resurrect all the other like ghouls and mutants from this era, you know, because they obliquely like allude to Donald Trump mm-hmm. in the slight negative in a speech or something. Yeah, we're now all of this is is back. But Luke, you're so immature. You know, you 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 lefty. You don't understand that these are real people making difficult decisions. <laughs> you don't you don't understand that these are humans. The point of this movie is to understand Donald Rumsfeld instead of demonizing him. Get inside that that thick skull of his. <laughs> and Morris does that by taking us back to his college days uh, when he was uh, courting his missus when he, when he met the old wife. And uh, and and G. Wiz, he even I think he even says G Wiz yeah. in this movie. Uh, he says heck a lot. He has a, he has a real sort of aw shucks type of persona, doesn't yeah, he? Uh, just a little just a little scamp. And golly, you know, he met the right woman and he married her. And uh, folks, you should all be so lucky. <laughs> and you know, there's a, a I want to say a 30 minute stretch of the movie where he talks <laughs> about working with Nixon and then gerald ford and then he was only peripherally involved in the reagan administration right, and most of most of that again like there's nothing reflective about it at all it's just rumsfeld telling you what happened and stuff that you could basically read on wikipedia yeah and the yeah. novelty is that it's rumsfeld himself talking about it and gee there was this primary challenge from reagan and uh, there was this assassination attempt and you know every now and then there will be a really tepid personal anecdote yeah, i'll share like some inside joke that he had with gerald ford Board or something or totally he'll, thrilling yeah. stuff or he'll give a lukewarm take about well you know uh president nixon 
put all those tape recorders in his office because he thought he was a world historical figure. Um, was it the right idea? Well, well, shucks, who knows? Yeah. You know, it didn't seem to work out for him. You be the judge. Yeah, and how can you sit and watch this and think this is interesting to hear? Mm-hmm. Like, if this guy were on a podcast, I would turn it off. Well, and also, like, if there's anybody around who should be able to pronounce on the morality of something like that, if there's any reason that this film should exist... Mm-hmm. Donald Rumsfeld should be telling us directly what he thinks about that. Mm. He should either own it or he should repudiate Mm. it. And to hear all of these just banal observations and and stories set to the tune of this wall-to-wall Danny Elfman music. Mm. Danny Elfman imitating Philip Glass, basically. (laughs) But still with a lot of Elfman flourishes, like Uh like that Tim Burton choir that he always uses. It's absurd. I mean, an actual honest movie about Donald Rumsfeld would be more like an Armando Iannucci movie, Mm -hmm. where it's just this dope, this doofus, this kind of unreflective idiot. And the whole joke would be, this is the kind of guy who's in charge of the country. So the main visual device of the film is this snow globe, which is sort of doubling as a crystal ball and also a sort of metaphor for the fact that um, Rumsfeld, who was very, you know, assiduous about his memos, um, that he called the memos snowflakes. All the memos, all the little thoughts, all the little kind of grains of sand about geopolitics, the millions and millions of them swirl around in the crystal ball. And that kind of repeats throughout, as do kind of these very quick shots of the memos, which all have titles that sound like unpublished scripts from House of Cards or something, like The Swamp or whatever. (laughs) And I actually like this, but not for the reason that the movie wants us to like it, because it's supposed to show the profound seriousness of all this, that all of this is, you know, interrogated rigorously and debated and stuff. And what I like about it is that it shows how just bureaucratic the American empire is and how Mm. it's just like... These decisions that result in the deaths or have resulted in the deaths of millions of people that sustain Mm -hmm. this massive system of kind of global enforcement that sustain the most powerful country in human history are just made by these like technocrats that are Mm -hmm. passing memos to each other. Like Mm -hmm. it's so kind of white collar. It's so mundane. Yeah, but Morris presents it as if they're these visionaries who are sitting in front of this big map and they're like plotting what are the next 50 years going to look like. Uh Why the obsession with Iraq and Saddam? Well, you love that word obsession. I can see the glow in your face when you say it. Well, I'm an obsessive person. Are you? I'm not. I'm I'm, uh, cool and measured. If you look at the range of my memos, there might be one-tenth of one percent about Iraq. The reason I was concerned about Iraq is because four-star generals would come to me and say, Mr. Secretary, we have a problem. Our orders are to fly over the northern part of Iraq and the southern part of Iraq on a daily basis with the Brits, and we are getting shot at. One of my other favorite visual devices of the movie, by the way, is when Morris throws up the dictionary definition of a word onto the screen for no reason. Well, like, that that's great because, uh, yeah, you'll get the definition of torture mm-hmm. or something. And what's great about these kind of memos, these, you know, snapshots of which you keep seeing is mm-hmm. like a lot of what these sort of State Department and, and Defense Department officials, what they're talking about it's, it's like these very postmodern kind of conversations going on where like Rumsfeld mm-hmm. will be like, define the word victory or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's like, 
I had no idea that the inner workings of the American imperial apparatus were so kind of Foucauldian. <laughs> yeah. There are also so many parts of the movie where Rumsfeld will say something that is just straight up kind of a neoconservative talking point about how humanity has an instinct for barbarism and uh, war is always part of us mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that's when it's our responsibility or something. And Morris just presents this stuff totally uncritically it's just commonsensical and and like he'll say it over an image of like stock footage of pearl harbor Mm. or stock footage of a military jet going Mm. off an aircraft carrier while the danny elfman music is playing and there is nothing at all critical about this i mean the fact that the danny elfman music is sort of solemn a bit downbeat is like clearly an attempt to signal some sort of a nuance But really what it does is just kind of artificially manufacture a sense of drama where there is none. Mm -hmm. Following the narrative arc of the movie, things turn for the worse for our hero Donald with outrage over Guantanamo Bay and also the Abu Ghraib photos, which Rumsfeld and the movie mostly frame as a crisis of optics rather than a moral crisis. The Guantanamo section is, I guess, one of the other moments where Morris sort of tepidly pushes back Mm -hmm. because Rumsfeld denies that any waterboarding took place. But then Morris cuts to some news articles that say the other forms of torture that took place, like forced nudity or uh, loud music. Yeah, that sort of thing. But that kind of seems like stuff that Morris read after the interview was done because he doesn't really push back to Rumsfeld. And the Abu Ghraib part, you know, Rumsfeld's chief concern was of public backlash. Yeah, all the headlines you see on the screen are things like new PR crisis for the White House, you know, White House rallies to maintain support for the war. Rumsfeld did make a pretty good point, though, from the wrong direction towards the end when he says that Barack Obama, who was a major critic of the war... We're now a number of years into his presidency and the Patriot Act is still there and Guantanamo Bay is still there, which which I think proves some of the wisdom of (laughs) President Bush's policies, which, you know, don't agree with that. But, you know, he does have a point that those things are still there. Yeah, it's just not the point that he means to make. (laughs) It's making a different point. Rumsfeld... The whole narrative just comes from him. Like, it doesn't certainly doesn't appear that Morris had a specific structure in mind that he sort of forced Rumsfeld to adhere to. Rumsfeld gets to tell his own story. And this mm-hmm. this is, actually points to something else that I like about the film, although this is kind of a, an ac- accidental on the film's part, which is I really do think it is an incredible document of American imperial narcissism. Mm-hmm. Because conflict in this film, war, planned destruction... You know, they're all kind of just dehistoricized. The United States just kind of stumbles into things. It's the central character in its own story. How about that scene where he talks about his famous handshake with Saddam Hussein? Very silly. He talks about it as if, well, you know, geez, I just happened to be in the room and there was, uh, I mean, he doesn't say it quite like that. There was Saddam and, you know, I I could see in his eyes that he was a dictator. (laughs) And it's not as if Rumsfeld as a senior U.S. dignitary would be sort of unfamiliar with, you know, you know, he's talking about meetings and I was saying, it's like, oh yeah, he was surrounded by these courtiers and he would have people, you know, children sing his name and stuff. And it's like, mate, you've been to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. 
Late in the movie, Errol Morris asks him a really bad question. Uh, Would you say you are controlled by history or that you control history? Mm. And Rumsfeld gives, frankly, the only honest answer to that, which is, I'm not sure it's either. It's like, neither, both, whatever, let's move on. (laughs) But I think that question is kind of indicative of what Morris wants Rumsfeld to be, right? He wants him to either be this feather in the wind Mm. or this Machiavellian genius. Well, and I think that that speaks to the genre that this film is kind of fitting into, which is this one built around the archetype of kind of, you know, the great trans-historical statesman, which I guess is an archetype people are attracted to. I mean, that's why Henry Kissinger's books still sell at Indigo. It's why some people still read, like, Francis Fukuyama essays when they appear in foreign policy Mm -hmm. or whatever. There's something attractive... Honestly, in the same way that like Jordan Peterson is is attractive to a particular type of male mind, I think mm-hmm. it's very similar. I think, and I think it is kind of gendered, you know, this idea of kind of the twenty four dimensional chess, you know, statesman. The film really plays that up. I think that again speaks to how kind of parochial the type of introspection that American culture is is able to do or is willing to do about the american empire right like the united states exists and it's unquestioned that it is this uniquely important entity Mm -hmm. and things just kind of happen to it Mm -hmm. and it falls to these great people to figure out what to do about that and these are people who are operating kind of purely on the basis of some abstract national self-interest that is kind of stated but Rarely defined, you just kind of invoke it. Nowhere in this film is anything about, you know, the structure of the American state talked about the fact that, you know, since the Second World War, the American state has had this, you know, which, you know, an American president literally warned about this. It's not some, you know, abstraction or part conspiracy theory. I mean, there is a military industrial complex. There is a vast and lucrative system that incentivizes the projection of military force, that hardwires it into these structures of state. And I think a much more interesting film about Donald Rumsfeld would be one that shows how the American state recruits these total nincompoops who have these delusions of grandeur to kind of execute its designs, which in some ways are actually fairly impersonal and done on the basis of very narrow kinds of self-interest and actually don't have anything to do with grand designs because that's often not how or why military force is applied on the scale that it's applied by the United States. So this is a film for a liberal audience who would presumably hope to either see Donald Rumsfeld express remorse or gain new insight into him. But as we've seen, it not only fails at both counts, but it's actively counterproductive. And it's essentially a monument to its own uselessness. However, what about the very last scene of the movie? Oh, doesn't doesn't Morris just nail him? The, the last question he asks Rumsfeld is, why are you doing this? Why are you talking to me? And Rumsfeld says, that's a... A vicious question. I don't know. <laughs> Got him, you know? Nailed it. And then and then it cuts to like a pan shot of like the ocean and just says, in memory of Roger Ebert, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What's so great about that in memory of Roger Ebert is like that last shot is supposed to be like, you know, the absolute zinger. And you're supposed to leave the theater thinking of that. But instead you leave the theater thinking of, 
Well, that's weird he followed it up with In Memory of Roger Ebert <laughs> in this movie about Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, the, the movie ends with, like very hard with a, a, a glaring semicolon. It's just like the most like... <laughs> yeah. One thing I liked is Rumsfeld talking about his relationship with Tariq Aziz, who is for some time uh, Hussein's number two man and deputy prime minister and, 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 and I think foreign minister as well. And Rumsfeld spent a lot of time with this guy and he comes out, you know, he says, and I spent hours with him and he just seemed completely rational. And mm-hmm. when Saddam Hussein was captured, they asked, would you like to go see him? And he said, no, but I'd like to see, you know, Tariq Aziz. And I just had the image of Rumsfeld, you know, as Errol Morris interviewing Tariq Aziz about like, you know, so talk about the memo where you asked the Iraqi interior ministry to define, you know, gassing or, yeah. you know, whatever. And then Aziz would just dish out some completely meaningless aphorism and you're supposed to go, wow. We know they have weapons of mass destruction. We know they have active programs. There, there isn't any debate about it. So, so the idea that if you had an appropriate inspection regime, uh, that they'd come back and say you were wrong is, is um, so far beyond anyone's imagination that it's not something that I think about. Well, here we are at the end of another episode, and, uh, you know, I feel good. I just feel like I can already feel it that with this episode, the Michael and Us brand will just continue exploding, you know? (laughs) Well, uh, of course, uh, you and I have both been uh, out podcasting elsewhere. You're going to, I guess, is it next week or the week after uh, your appearance on Talking Simpsons? Yeah, that's right. We both had a lot of fun on that. My yeah. episode came out today. You, ju- you just did a bootleg Michael and us on Citations Needed talking about uh, <laughs> yeah, the West Wing. One of, I don't know how many appearances I've done now somewhere to talk about the West Wing. Yeah, and if, if you're unfamiliar with Citations Needed, highly recommend kind of a, a media criticism podcast. Really, really good. Check it out. And you know, with the Patreon and everything, I think, I think it's safe to say that Michael and us is on uh, the lips of every man, woman, and child. And we're ready to sell out. Uh, you were suggesting t-shirts, uh, yeah, maybe what, mugs. What are what are some of the... I, I mean, it's 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 gauche <laughs> to think of your own catchphrases. We, we, we have a t-shirt that says, now watch this drive. Yeah, or uh, Al Gore won the popular vote. Al Gore lives on we, my we street. Can, we could re-release Al Gore lives on my street like as a vinyl single. If we ever did a live show, do you think we could get that guy to come to it and open for us? Oh my god, that would be incredible. I mean, he's He's probably not up to much. Can we save up maybe three months of Patreon money to pay for his flight and hotel? (laughs) (laughs) Performing. I don't even remember. To perform at a bar show. What was his name? I can't remember. Every time, you know, we put it in, I look it up. What would be so great about that is that we would pay all that money and then he would actually do it and nobody would realize that it was the guy and they just think it was some (laughs) random guy performing. And then even if they did realize, they'd be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> no one cares. And you know, we are happy to sell the movie rights. I'm working on a screenplay myself, Michael and us, the movie where it's about uh, two uh, novelty <laughs> podcasters uh, who have to team up to save the community center from some evil developers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a lot like something that happened to us. But really, we'll know that we've reached peak success when we no longer have to do the podcast anymore. And in fact, we could hire two new people to do the podcast in our stead and they can like <laughs> playing us as characters yeah because yeah we're, because we're like historical figures yeah and we can go to our executive producer roles <laughs> and just be kind of become kind of like the masterminds of michael and us enterprises <laughs> just standing atop it all navigating the tides of history just like donald rumsfeld such a beautiful thought now watch this drive <laughs>